Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hello and welcome to the Karma You podcast. This is the place to be to become your calmest, happiest, and most confident self. I'm Chloe Brotheridge, your host. I'm a coach and a hypnotherapist, and I'm the author of The Anxiety Solution and Brave New Girl, which has been published on the 2nd of May, 2019, and is available for pre-order now. So this week on the podcast, I'm talking to Laura Thomas, PhD, who is a registered nutritionist, and she's the author of Just Eat It. And her book is very good and very funny, by the way, I definitely recommend it. And she specializes in intuitive eating, health at every size and non-diet nutrition. She's based in London where she's cutting through the nutrition BS, telling people what they really need to know to stay on top of their game. And we discuss the problem with diet mentality and how none of us escapes the clutches of diet mentality really and how we can start to break free from it. We discuss letting go of anxiety about food and weight. We talk about intuitive eating and Laura gives us some tips on how we can start. Plus, Laura busts some diet myths. So I loved this episode. It's really informative, really inspiring. And she shares a lot of stories that are really relatable. So let's get into the episode. So welcome, Laura. Thanks so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. This feels like a a full circle moment because you were on my podcast back in the day, right? No, it was two years ago. And I think that was one of the first podcasts I'd ever done. I think I'd done one more apart from that. And it was a, it was great. So good to to have you on. Time flies, hey? I know, I know. Um, So, I mean, can you just tell us, you know, for people that maybe don't know about you, what it is that you do and how you got to where you are today? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So backstory, um, I have uh, an undergraduate degree in human health and nutrition from the University of Aberdeen. And I got interested in studying the gut microbiome for my like honors project. Uh, And that took me uh, actually to the States to do a PhD, um, where again, I was looking at the gastrointestinal microbiome. But uh, I, I, so I studied that for about three years, but then for a variety of different reasons, I ended up switching supervisors and I got more into um, the behavioral side of things. So I was looking at psychosocial determinants of behavior change. So all of the things um, in our environment and in our brains that kind of determine how we um, engage in different behaviors or at least have some influence in, in engaging in different behaviors. 
that then led me to um, doing a postdoctoral fellowship at Cornell University. Um, again, just like really heavily academic, doing research, like out in the field, taking measurements, and um, then going back and sitting in front of a computer and writing it all up. Um, so lots of interviews with people, that kind of thing. Um, and then, ooh, I think it was about 2014, I finished my postdoc and I moved back to the UK and I had always known that I really wanted to work for myself. So I decided to um, go freelance. And so in the beginning I was, I was seeing one-on-one -on -one individuals, but I was also doing a lot of like menu planning and like nutrition facts, information, that kind of like really standard nutrition stuff. Um, which, you know, just like paying my dues basically. And then um, as I as I was sort of building up the, the kind of clinical side of what I was doing, I, I realized, and for context, this was like peak wellness. Everyone was like slathering themselves in coconut oil and, um, you know, drinking loads and loads of turmeric lattes. And what I noticed in my clinical practice is that people were to all intents and purposes eating fine. You know, they had a variety of different foods, but their relationship with food wasn't great. And and in fact, I said before that I, I kind of felt like they had a variety of foods. I would kind of take that back and, and say, actually, they were eating quite rigidly. So although they were eating, quote unquote, the right foods, they they were very rigid in their eating. And in fact, missing out on key nutrients and um, or putting themselves at risk for nutrient deficiencies and so I'd already come across the concepts of intuitive eating and I, I'd kind of I'd find them helpful personally so I went back and I did a lot of reading and retraining and um, I started talking about intuitive eating on my podcast and I set up an online course and people just it really really resonated with them that they, there was someone saying like, you don't have to be on this super rigid, restrictive diet. You don't have to cut all this stuff out in order to be healthy, in order to be well. Um, and hey, why don't we try trusting our bodies a little bit more? Because fundamentally that's really what intuitive eating boils down to. So I don't know how long an answer you wanted there, but I just gave you the whole life story. <laughs> <laughs> that's perfect. That's perfect. Wow. Okay. So you were seeing people who were kind of following wellness trends but actually that had led them to a path of having a bad relationship with food and even being deficient in nutrients essentially yeah or, or certainly setting themselves up at risk for um, certain nutrient deficiencies so to give you an example of that I don't know if you remember there was a point in time where literally everyone was making their own like nut milks and almond milks and cashew milk and all of that kind of stuff and, and that's fine if you enjoy the taste and you have the time and the money and the energy to do all of that stuff. That's great. But you, you, you have to realize as well that those milks aren't fortified and they're going to be really low in essential nutrients like calcium, iodine, um, and, and vitamin B12. So if you're not supplementing from somewhere else, which a lot of people weren't, then actually those milks aren't really that great for you. 
And so that's what I'm talking about when, when I'm saying like you were kind of setting yourself up for nutrient deficiency is because you weren't get, replacing those key nutrients from elsewhere. But sort of underlying that was the sense that, th that these homemade plant-based milks were somehow better um, for you nutritionally. And that actually just doesn't stand up to scrutiny. But that's an example of a lot of the sort of the wellness rabbit holes that people found themselves falling down. Um, but actually they were kind of, they were not great from a physical nutrition perspective, but also from a psychological perspective. Um, if you were only drinking something or eating something because you were afraid of the alternative, then that's highlighting that perhaps your relationship with food is, is broken or, or troubled in some sense. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does, it does. <laughs> I think, I suppose there can be a lot of anxiety about food because sure. um, things that we should, you know, good and bad foods or don't mm -hmm. eat this and eat this or everyone on Instagram seems to be posting about a certain thing and if, you know, you can't eat that, then it's, yeah. um, you might feel under pressure or anxious about that. And it's, sure. Yeah, it's a, it's a problem, I think. And everyone has an opinion about food, don't they? Everyone... Everyone's happy to offer you their advice based on their experience of what works for them, but it's we're all different as well. So, well, yeah, and and most you know just because we eat food does not make us experts in food and nutrition. So yeah, yeah, but yeah, we a lot of people feel as though they are that they have a lot more knowledge than they actually do. Can you talk about the the problem with diet mentality and what is this diet mentality that you talk about in your book? Yeah, so again, it, it's quite a, a broad concept, um, but I think maybe to help the listeners understand is to give you an example of something that happened recently with a client of mine, and she, so she's going through the process of intuitive eating at the moment, and her background is chronic dieter, but also a little bit caught up in the wellness bug, and so there's a lot of complicated things going on. And it, she was out at the pub, like at a kind of gastro pub with her friends for her birthday. And she ordered um, like fish and chips and mushy peas. Um, and then she, she came into session the following week and mentioned that she was just like freaking out a lot about the fact that she'd eaten this particular meal. And I tried to help her sort of realize what was going on here, which is that you know, everybody else at the at the table had also had fish and chips or something similar. And that she, you know, she found herself like comparing how much she was eating with everybody else. And she found herself caught up in the cycle of like, well, this is, this bit's good and this bit's bad. And oh, I'm being whatever she had told herself. And it had completely taken her out of the moment, out of the experience of being with her friends, out of the sort of conviviality of the meal and enjoying the fact that it was her freaking birthday and to me that kind of ties up exactly what diet mentality is it takes us away from the moment it takes us away from the experience of eating our food of being with our friends of enjoying ourselves and kind of turns us into this observer always kind of criticizing or um commenting on whatever you're eating and it's exhausting to have that 
that mental back and forth about what to eat, when to eat, how much to eat. Is this a good food? Is this a bad food? Is it healthy? Is it unhealthy? Is it clean? Is it dirty? Is it processed? Is it real? Like all of these conversations that we have. Um, and, and then the sort of like, well, if I eat the potatoes, can I also eat the bread? And like, it just gets completely exhausting. And, and that's what diet mentality is. And so apart from the fact that it is consuming so much of our mental resources is the sort of underlying fact that actually diets don't work. And we have really robust scientific evidence that shows that time and time again, most people after five years will regain any weight that, that they lost. That's if they manage to lose weight in the first place, because a lot of people don't actually, there's a, a meta-analysis study, which is kind of a collection of smaller studies from 2017 that looked at people that were doing structured weight loss programs like Weight Watchers and Slimming World and things like that. And what they found was that 60% of the people on those diets didn't even lose 5% of body weight in the first place. And 5% is considered to be that amount that's like the clinical gold standard. So if only 40% lose weight in the first place, or 5% lose any significant amount of weight in the first first place. Um, and then most people are going to regain that anyway. It just kind of underscores the futility of dieting. So, and but what makes that kind of, I suppose, co more complicated is the fact that we live in diet culture, right? And so all the messages that we're receiving, whether they're messages from you know, about wellness or about fashion or from the media is that you should be thin, 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 thin. Uh, but the, the reality is that there's a wide variety of different body shapes and sizes. Um, and not, not, you know, this, this thin ideal that we see portrayed in the media is biogenetically difficult, if not impossible for most people. That's fascinating, isn't it? I'm just, I'm just thinking <laughs> about how, I wonder, do we, do you think we just, almost damage, get damaged probably from an early age in terms of our relationship with food. And I, I remember being 14 and skipping meals because I wanted my stomach to be flatter or throughout university going on a calorie controlled diet and losing and I lost like half a stone. And then that had like planted a seed in my mind and I was like, right, I need to like, you know, it's calories in, calories out and I need to watch the calories. And I became like quite obsessed with yeah. what I was eating. If I'd eaten something, you know, in inverted commas, bad. bad, then I would beat myself up about it. And I, you know, I've done quite a bit of work myself to overcome that now, and I, and I just eat normally. Um, but it really bothered me for a number of years, and I think there's a lot of people, I don't know what if there's statistics to even say, like how many people are affected by just worrying about what they're eating mm -hmm. or not being able to just relax and eat in a natural normally, way. Yeah. yeah. And it's difficult to get, like, exact numbers on this but there are some studies uh in sort of college-aged women so that uh, demographic that you were talking about before chloe uh which puts it at between um 50 to 75 percent of women in that age group mm. uh, we also have studies from girls that are a bit younger that for so for 16 year olds so school-age girls um that number is around 40 percent and then what we expect happens is as they get older, as they get more exposed to dieting um, and disordered behaviors, that that number goes up. 
but at a population level, something like two-thirds of women in the UK are on a diet or have been trying to lose weight in the past year. Um, now, that doesn't necessarily mean that all of them will engage in disordered eating behaviors, but there is a certain element of disorder that goes along with the pursuit of, of weight loss and because we have to get quite um, compulsive, compulsive and obsessive about tracking everything or going to the gym all the time or good and bad foods and we get really bogged down in the minutia of detail about food um and and what can happen is that you're trying to eat so few calories let's say you're doing like my fitness pal or something and you it will it'll tell you that you could only only eat like 1200 calories and even if even if you follow government advice to reduce your intake by 500 calories that's still so few calories or not enough to meet your energy needs. And so what happens is your body kind of to all intents and purposes kind of thinks like it's not getting enough energy to meet its requirements. So it dials up hunger hormones and it kind of dials down your metabolism at the same time. So you've simultaneously got these two opposing things going on that your body is amping up the the kind of signals to tell you to eat, but at the same time, dialing down your energy expenditure. Um, and, and what often can happen, aside from like feelings of guilt and stress and, and being anxious about the food that you're eating, is that you might then find yourself habitually eating past the point of comfortable fullness or even in some cases binging. And so it becomes this sort of self-defeating dieting cycle or this like merry-go-round that you just end up going round and round and round and round and it's really difficult to get off gosh okay so yeah so we want to get off that merry-go-round basically don't we we don't want to be on that ideally anymore. <laughs> i mean I, d I don't know anyone who enjoys being on that merry-go-round really one thing that was really interesting to me that you mentioned in your book um was a statistic around um, how much of our health is to do with things that we can control, like um, how much sleep we have or what we eat and stress? Actually, maybe things we control isn't the right word, but individual behaviours. Yeah. Um, whereas actually 62% of our health is to do with social circumstances, genetics, medical care, physical environment. And yeah. I was just reflecting back because um, I might have mentioned to you before, I was a nutritionist in the NHS before I retrained yeah. and one of my projects was to go into a really deprived area of um economically deprived area in Essex and do kind of healthy cooking sessions with kids and and parents and things and you know in the t in the sort of town where I was doing that there wasn't a shop that sold fruit and vegetables they had a spa um but there was no kind of supermarket nowhere that people could get vegetables and so just things like that you know of course it's going to be hard to you know eat yeah. eat eat vegetables or eat fresh foods when it actually isn't in that town yeah. just because of the structure of the town and um so that kind of yeah just resonated with with experience that I'd had about that statistic in your book yeah and I think that's a really important point to draw out because the way that sort of wellness culture is presented to us is that and, and even to some extent like um the the health minister has come out sort of saying we need to all take personal responsibility for our health, which is fine and great and all very well if you have the means to do so. But if you're in a, a lower socioeconomic 
position. You have so many things, so many other things that are competing for your time and your attention and your your financial resources that it's not just a simple case of like, oh, I'm going to start eating more vegetables today. Um, and, and sort of that personal responsibility narrative can end up making people feel a lot worse about their, the circumstances they're in. And I did a really great episode on my podcast about this with um, a sociologist called Ollie Williams. Maybe I could give you the link to put in the show notes because he can ex- just articulate it way better than I can. But essentially what I learned from Ollie is that if you have two people in the exact same, sorry, if you have two people, one is in a low socioeconomic bracket and one is in a high socioeconomic bracket, that even if they were performing the exact same behaviors, the same health behaviors, so they were getting enough sleep, they weren't smoking, they weren't drinking too much, they were eating their five a day, they were getting some exercise, they were going to the doctor regularly, all of those things that we know are good for us. Even if they did all of the exact same things, that person in that higher socioeconomic status would have better health outcomes and a higher life expectancy than the person in the lower socioeconomic bracket. And I think that just really nicely sums up how important socioeconomic status is in predicting our health outcomes. And um, in this country and in other Western countries, we have huge disparities between health in the sort of top tier socioeconomic status versus the bottom ones. And it's like, you know, in, in some cases it might be like 20 disability adjusted life years, which is just enormous. So, um, yeah, I think we, you know, when we're talking about a lot of stuff within wellness, it, it's coming from an already very, very privileged position. And just to say to someone who is, you know, making minimum wage and trying to, look after three kids by themselves um, to go eat, a, go drink a green juice or drink a turmeric latte. It's just not gonna, it's not gonna be helpful. Mm. Yeah, totally. So, yeah, I think there's something about, um, that you mentioned as well in the book about the kind of, I don't know how you phrased it, about sort of health being imbued with morality. Somehow if you're um, looking after your health, you're more of a moral person. And just how yeah. kind of unfair that is for, for those reasons. Well, if you think about it, there are people who are, are born with chronic diseases. Um, there are people who develop chronic diseases and, and disabilities throughout their life. And by saying that, you know, health is this sort of apex of humanity, what we're actually saying is that those people who aren't capable of health for whatever reason because of chronic illness, disability, or just because that's not a priority to them, they are lesser than you somehow. And we have to remember that health is not available to everyone and health isn't always a priority for everyone, but those people still deserve respect and care and love. Um, and they're they're no lesser than, than anyone else who, you know, I guess I guess what I'm trying to say is again it's a very privileged position to prioritize your health like in an ideal world sure I'm I'm sure everybody would want to have have their health but if you have a lot of competing um, things going on in your life like if you're deprived and, and disadvantaged for whatever reason then you have like all these other fires that you need to put out 
before you can even think about, like you might just be trying to get through your day, making sure that, um, you know, your kids aren't getting caught up in um, violence or that you, you don't get fired from your job or whatever it is just that you're doing just day to day to keep things together might mean that you, you don't have the, the capacity or the resources to like plan out this, you know, from scratch made meal. And, and oftentimes I'll hear, hear people argue, but like, oh, it doesn't cost that much to, to make um, a meal from scratch. But sure, that, that's true if you have the, the know-how, if you have the time to go shopping for those resources, the time to prepare it. Like if you're cooking beans from scratch, you have to like wash them and um, soak them overnight and then rinse them. And then it still takes a freaking hour to cook. If you're, if you're working multiple jobs, you just don't have that kind of time. So we need to look at the, not just the financial costs, but the sort of opportunity cost as well. Mm -hmm. I think that's really key to remember when we're having these conversations. Yeah, definitely. So we've gone down this little rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm gonna um, I'm gonna bring it back. I'm gonna bring it back to um to diet myths because you're on your Instagram and also in your book you're quite um you're known for calling calling things out and for <laughs> um you know showing no mercy to some of these diet myths that I think we often just accept in our culture as true um because we see them in the newspapers or magazines or people post about them on instagram are there any particular diet myths that you'd like to bust now yeah there are a couple that come to mind i think one that i hear really commonly is that so you know the concept of intuitive eating is based on um, understanding and responding to your hunger signals but I hear so people, so many people being like, well, what if you're not actually thirst hungry, but you're thirsty? And this is just definitely something that has been um, drilled into us by diet culture. Because if you take a step back and think about what thirst feels like in our bodies versus what hunger feels like, they're actually quite different sensations. So I'm kind of thirsty right now, and I feel like I've got a dry mouth, my throat is kind of scratchy, I just, you know, j yeah, I know, right? <laughs> All this talk of thirsty is making me yeah. thirsty. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's quite a, a specific sensation, and I think, just a sort of side note on that, is actually a lot of people think thirst is a sign that you're already dehydrated. That's not true either. Thirst is a sort of um, pre-warning that there are beginning to be shifts in, in the cellular volume of your body. And so like your body is able to detect these tiny, tiny shifts that tell you that you're heading towards dehydration. So you need to start drinking. Um, and so that, that's, that's really what thirst is. And it, that can only be quenched by drinking fluids, right? Whereas hunger can show up in a variety of different places. And so, I'm always remember or trying to remind my clients to think about all of the different ways that hunger can be detected. It's not just that pit of your belly, like rumbling and gnawing, but it's also shifts in your energy level, shifts in your mood, shifts in your focus or your concentration, or even a kind of dull headache. And you'll know that when you're, when you're really, really thirsty, it's a, it's a different headache than if you're hungry. Um, and then your overall sort of 
body, do you feel kind of weak or do you feel shaky or all of these things can kind of indicate that you're hungry, but we just think about it in, as that pit of our belly. And it's, it's a kind of classic diet culture move to say, well, when you're, when you're hungry, actually what you need to do is drink water. What if actually you just need to eat something? Um, so that's the first one. And then I think another really common thing that I think people just get sort of freaked out about is, is well, sugar in general, but more specifically this idea that you are addicted to sugar. And we could do an entire podcast just on this, but, and I guess I want to caveat this by saying that I understand why people's experiences might feel as though they are addicted to food or why they might feel sort of out of control or compulsive around certain foods. But I'm, I'm, we go straight to labeling that as sort of a food addiction or a sugar addiction. However, we don't tend to step back and look at the wider picture. And what I've found in my clinical experience and, and what this sort of matches up with in terms of the research literature as well, is that when we heavily restrict something or deprive ourselves of something, so let's use like the keto, the keto diet as an example. So you, um, in the keto diet, you pretty much remove all carbohydrates and eat high fat and moderate protein. Um, but then what's the thing that you can't stop thinking about is bread and carbs <laughs> and chips and all of those kinds of things. Um, and that is sort of because our brains are hardwired to want the things that we can't have. Um, and what they've, so, so basically what we're doing in that instance is when we do come into contact with that particular food that we can't have, we're much more likely to just flip out about that food and eat more of it than um, might make us or might be comfortable for us. And this is what I call the fuck it effect in my book. And it's basically this idea of like, well, I've broken my diet, so I might as well just go, you know, all in. And you end up in this, it might end up in a binge for a lot of people. And so that can feel a lot like, like you're addicted to a food, but actually it's a product of restriction and deprivation more so than it is about a, 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 a substance addiction. And there's a lot more to it than this, so I'm trying to make this succinct, but um, in terms of the, the research literature as well, there seems to be... A, quite a big overlap between um, the concept of food addiction and binge eating disorder. And again, we know in binge eating disorder, if people aren't eating regular meals, consistent meals, and eating foods that are pleasurable, then they're much more likely to be vulnerable for a binge. As well as that, if we look at, because I'll, I'll also hear a lot of people saying, well, there was this news study that, or this study in the news that showed that mice mice's brains um lit up like <laughs> wait what oh, hold on let me get this straight so that the um yeah that there are like mri scans of mice whose brains light up when they get food in the same way that they light up when they are exposed to um narcotics and 
I think this is problematic in a lot of di- for a lot of different reasons. But if we just think about it really simply, um, our brains light up at all kinds of shit, right? Our brains light up at kittens and puppies and memes and music that we like and films that we enjoy and our children and people we love. And so we have to be really, really careful about not pathologizing what is essentially a normal function of our body. And um, sort of to add to that, when we when we look at these studies in animals, what we find is, so there's a kind of classic experiment where they um, give animals in cages either water laced with sugar or water laced with heroin. And they found that the mice went more towards the water um, laced with sugar. And they use this as sort of evidence that, um, that sugar is addictive. But if you think about it, if you had, first of all, if you had the choice between drinking some tasty water or getting high and having a massive come down afterwards, you might learn that actually it's a better idea to eat or to drink the sweet water than it is to OD. Not, not that they would be ODing, but like then, then to go hard on drugs. Um, but we also have to take into take into account that the animals in those studies were also restricted from eating any food for 12 hours before they were exposed to either of the bottles of water. So that means that they were in that restriction deprivation mode before they were exposed. They were basically, you know, they were fasted. And I don't know about you, Chloe, but after 12 hours of not eating anything, if I had the choice of having what is essentially Lucozade or some heroin, I would probably <laughs> choose the Lucozade. <laughs> so we have to be really, really, really careful when we're interpreting these studies. And in, in fact, there's a recent paper um, called Sugar Addiction, The State of the Science, and it basically went through everything that we know all of the studies that have been done around this concept and, and, and sort of said, actually, there's no evidence that food addiction is the same as, as any kind of substance addiction. Um, but what we, again, what we know drawing on clinical practice is yes, it can feel a lot like you're obsessive and compulsive around those foods, but that that might actually be a product of more disordered eating rather than a true substance uh, addiction. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. I've tried to summarize that, but um, it's it's a it's a huge topic in and of itself. And I've done a podcast, a great podcast, with a dietitian friend of mine who really goes into all the details. So maybe I can send you that for people who are interested in hearing more about it. Great, great. That'd be really helpful. Can you um, talk about what intuitive eating is? And mm. if people want to start eating intuitively, what, what could they do? Yeah, so I kind of talked about this concept of intuitive eating a couple of times, but basically it's a way of, um, it's, or it's a, it's a framework for helping us move away from rigid or disordered or restrictive eating or dieting and helping us get back, back in touch with the signals and the messages that our body is sending us 
for pleasure and satisfaction and taste, um, hunger and fullness, but also what makes us feel good, what makes us feel well in our bodies. And so it's a set of, of 10 principles that was originally developed by two dietitians in the 90s who wrote a book called Intuitive Eating. Um, but in my book, I kind of have shaken up the principles a little bit and um, just sort of um, presented them in the way that I would with my clients when I'm working through the, the principles with them. And, you know, ultimately, the hope is to move away from external rules and restrictions about what we eat and learn to trust our bodies, learn to trust our bodies to guide what to eat, when to eat, and how much to eat um, without feeling guilty or anxious or overwhelmed about those choices. And so if that means that you eat more one day, well, what ha what happens if you don't try and compensate for that? Does your body naturally eat a few smaller meals over the, the course of the next week? Or, um, you know, maybe it doesn't, and that's, that's also okay, but it's really learning to be flexible with our eating and, and move away from really black and white rules and restrictions around food and learn to eat flexibly so you can kind of go with the flow when it comes to food. Um, but that's not to say that that doesn't also mean supporting health. Like intuitive eating is definitely a health promoting intervention. Um, but it, the way that it does that is just not in such a rigid or kind of fixed way as, as we might be um, kind of accustomed to if we've been on diets or kind of following wellness trends for a long time. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I guess one question that I had, and I think you address, you have addressed this in your book as well, is that people might be worried, oh, if I let go of all these rules and all this um, counting baggage. and baggage. <laughs> oh, yeah, baggage, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but if I let go of the rules, won't I just eat uncontrollably and end up, I don't know, in a worse position health-wise, potentially? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's a really common fear. And I guess um, part part of that fear, I think, comes, we have to look at where that fear is coming from in the first place, right? Because we are all born with this ability to feed ourselves and to regulate our own intake. Like as babies, we're not all sitting there like counting out macros or calories and tracking everything and like, you know, monitoring everything on a Fitbit. So we have to kind of work under the premise that like, We've got this. Kids are born with this intuitive eating ability. And because of diet culture and because of, I don't know, weird stuff that we were told as kids about food and clearing our plate and not being able to go out to play until we eat our vegetables or whatever it is, is we, we disconnect and we lose that innate ability to regulate our own intake. And so intuitive eating can, is a framework that helps us get back in touch with that. All of that said, um, I like to do this little experiment. So for the listeners, if you want to just, if, if it's safe and you're not about to walk in front of a car, if you just close your eyes for a second, I'm going to get you to do this, Chloe. So close okay, your eyes. Close my eyes. <laughs> Take a couple of breaths. And imagine that, I don't know, let's say you've gone across town and you've bought yourself a box of a dozen donuts. And first thing in the morning, you wake up and you have a donut with your coffee or maybe two, who knows, however many you're hungry for. 
And then you have another one for your mid-morning snack. And then another one for lunch. And then again for your afternoon coffee. Do you think you're going to want to have another donut come dinner time? No. <laughs> how do you feel after how do you feel after you've eaten donuts all day long? Um I like, what get, does it feel like in your body? You get to that point where it's a bit sickly, I think. And yeah. you're kind of, oh, I've quite craved something different now. Like I want something savoury or oh, I want some green foods just to just for that variety, yeah. I guess. So what we're saying is that if we just eat donuts all day long, if we're just eating dessert all day long, it doesn't feel very good in our bodies. Yes, that first one, maybe that first two feel pretty good and taste really delicious. But ultimately, if we were to eat like that for every single meal, we might end up feeling a bit nauseous. We might feel kind of icky and gross. And that's our body's way of communicating something to us, which is, hey, eat a balanced meal, damn it. <laughs> and, and so by the end of the end of the day of, of eating in that way, you might you might be what we call meal hungry. So you just want to eat like a sensible, balanced meal. And we have that kind of um, wisdom, I suppose, if you want to call it, in our bodies. It's just that diet culture tells us we can't trust ourselves. We have to override everything that our bodies are telling us and calculate it all on our phone. And I think that's really messed up that we trust our phones more than we trust our own bodies. Um, so, yeah, does that answer your question yeah. in terms of like when you're feeling, you know, of course it's a per it's perfectly normal to to be fearful of of that, but again, remember where that fe fear comes from because we weren't born with that fear, right? So that mm. we've had to kind of pick that up from somewhere. And again, it's probably from diet culture teaching us that we we can't trust our, our bodies but I'm here to say actually you can might take a little bit of time to kind of chip away at all the different layers but you can definitely get back to that point where you can you know 100% trust your body that's such a yeah a nice idea to to know that we can get back to that point of trust and go so let go of the anxiety about food and the pressure yeah. and the having to worry about it and the cycle of dieting and binging and that, that yeah. sort of thing that so many people struggle with. Yeah, and this idea of like trying to be a perfect eater. Like there's no such thing as a perfect diet. There's no such thing as a perfect food. Um, and, and so that's maybe a good place to start is to just have that realization that actually all foods contain a variety and a mixture of different nutrients. And like I said at the very beginning, that if you're super rigid and restrictive, you know, even if you think that you're eating the healthiest foods possible, actually that's not particularly healthy, especially if you have that anxiety and that guilt and that sense of shame, if you violate your self-imposed food rules, because that anxiety and that guilt and that shame are also not good for you. So you could have the, the most perfect diet ever, but if you if you have these negative emotion or this like emotional distress around food, then that's not good for you. Yeah, definitely. And what about? I suppose some people might, might be listening and thinking, yeah, but I still want to lose weight. Do do, yeah. do do we need to just let go of thinking about weight, or 
is that do you do you teach about that what's your take on that yeah so this is again a really common thing that I I hear from my clients is like I'm sick of diets I I know they don't work but I I don't feel good I don't feel comfortable in my body and I think the first thing to recognize straight off the bat is that diets don't cure negative body image so you know even I don't know if anyone's seen the Embrace documentary, but this is a great example of, um, so for people who aren't familiar with Embrace, basically it's a documentary produced by a woman, Tara Brumfeld. I think that's how you pronounce her last name. And she got to that point where she had the kind of quote unquote perfect body. She was a bodybuilder and she was um, competing in like competitions, competing in competitions, obviously. <laughs> so she was in, she was competing in bodybuilding competitions. And she says at the very beginning of that documentary that she had achieved this aesthetic ideal. But when she was behind the scenes getting ready for this competition, all of the women were talking about this or that part of their bodies that they didn't like, even though they, they had the quote unquote perfect bodies. So that just goes to highlight that like you can you can shrink your body down to that size but that doesn't mean that all of the challenges you face and all the body image distress that you you might have goes away. So um what I help my clients work towards and I should also just stress like you can intellectually and rationally understand that diets don't work and that they might cause more harm than good and that they're ultimately gonna you know they're one of the strongest predictors or risk factors for increased weight gain over time so you can understand that rationally but still you know feel like on another level like you want to lose weight you would feel better you'd look better whatever it is if you lost weight like again it's totally understandable if if you feel that way because we live in diet culture that is just projecting this very narrow ideal of what particularly women, but you know, increasingly other genders as well, like what they should look like. And um, so it would be almost like weird and abnormal if you didn't want to lose weight because that's what's kind of thrown at us all the time. But what I help my clients work towards is this concept of body neutrality. So maybe they don't love every roll or patch of cellulite and they just they don't wake up thinking they look incredible every single day. But can they get to a place where they're comfortable and they, you know, even if you're having a bad body image day, you don't immediately take that out on your body. So you don't restrict your food, you don't start pounding the gym um, and, and you just learn like, Actually, when I'm having a bad body image day, that's just a symptom of something else that something else isn't quite right. Maybe I haven't been getting enough sleep. Maybe I'm anxious about something. Maybe I'm about to start my freaking period. Who knows what it is? But it's a clue that something else is kind of off kilter for you and um, that you need to sort of redress some balance in your life, some sort of self-care or maybe it's therapy or maybe it's like maybe it's just calling your friend. So, yeah, hopefully that kind of makes sense and there's a whole chapter on like why in my book there's a whole chapter on body neutrality but also why weight 
isn't the sole determinant of health and why we can't get too hung up on weight from a health perspective either because it's actually not that helpful um, in terms of, of predicting health outcomes either. Yeah, I think you mentioned something um, called health at every size. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, so health at every size is sort of somewhere in between uh, a framework that we use for sort of health interventions, but it's also partly a social justice issue, um, social justice movement. And so, so health at every size is, again, it's a framework sort of in the non-diet paradigm that sort of posits that given access to non-stigmatizing healthcare, that everyone, regardless of the size of their bodies, should be allowed to and is capable of accessing things that can help improve their health. So to explain this a slightly different way, um, for anyone, <laughs> I don't know if maybe your listeners will kind of um, resonate with this, but oftentimes when we go to the doctor, it doesn't really matter what we're presenting with, um, they're told to lose weight, right? So um, let's say you have PCOS, lose weight. You got sore finger, lose weight. You've got, um, and this is particularly true for people in, in um, bigger bodies, but it, it, you know, thin people aren't immune to it. I've had my doctor tell me to lose weight and I'm a like straight size. And, um, I talk about, or one of, one of my clients in my book wrote a guest essay where she talks about how she went to her physiotherapist, um, because she had a shoulder problem and she, you know, explained how she works in this really busy hospital. She's walking around all day. She's lifting boxes, all of this kind of stuff. And after doing some like manipulation on her shoulder, the physiotherapist just hands her a leaflet and says, you need to lose weight. And she's kind of like, she, cause she's smart and she knows about health at every size. She kind of pushed back on him. And I was like, well, did my weight cause my shoulder problem? And the physio conceded, no, it didn't. And then she said, is going to lose weight. Is losing weight going to fix my shoulder problem? And he was like, no, it has nothing to do with your weight. Right. And, uh, and so it just goes to show that like, there's an assumption that's made about people in bigger bodies that, um, you know, they're basically, they're prescribed weight loss for a whole host of things, even though nobody had, you know, nobody had asked this particular client about her history and if she's tried to lose weight and, you know, the reason that she came to me is because she's tried every freaking diet under the sun and they, they haven't worked for her. But by, you know, making that assumption that A, she's not particularly active or B, that she has a poor diet or C, that she's never tried to lose weight before, you're actually, for somebody who's maybe less resilient than this particular person, is that that would have caused so much shame in that person. And we know that... Um, that being stigmatized based on the size of your body, being stigmatized like in the like in the example I just gave, leads to worse outcomes in terms of like disordered eating, um, 
people are less likely to engage in preventative health care, they're less likely to do exercise, but they also have more anxiety and depression and suicidal ideation, and people actually kill themselves as a result of being told that there's something wrong with their bodies. So what Health at Every Size kind of pushes for is that everybody should have respectful health care where weight is not the sort of um, the goal of treatment, but the goal of treatment is to help support access to healthcare um, and, and help remove barriers to health promoting behaviors for people who want it. And I'll just caveat this by saying that BMI is a, a pretty bullshit measure of, um, it's, it's, it's not in, it was not developed to use at an individual level. But there is a really nice study from the US that, sh that sampled 12,000 people and it looked at the relationship between BMI and engaging in health promoting behaviors and what that meant in terms of the, the risk outcome um, for disease. And so what they did was, um, they, so they looked at people, so if they looked at, first of all, people who didn't engage in any health, health promoting behaviors and the, health, the, the behaviors they were interested in were um, not smoking, not drinking to excess, eating five a day, and um, taking part in about 30 minutes of physical activity a day. So I think we can both agree, like, not that high a bar, like a pretty achievable <laughs> um, kind of thing for most, well, for a lot of people. So they looked at, first of all, looked at people who didn't engage in any of those four behaviors. And they found what we might expect, that there was a sort of more linear relationship between BMI and um, health risk. So people in the lowest BMI group had the lowest risk, people in the medium BMI group had a medium risk, and then people in the higher BMI group had a higher risk. But what happened when people engaged in just one of those four behaviors if they were in the highest BMI group, just one of those behaviors resulted in a 50% decreased risk of a, health, of a negative health outcome. And if they engaged in all four behaviors, they had the exact same disease risk as people in the lowest weight category. So what we're saying is we know that diets don't work, even if you're at a higher weight, um, but we know that you can improve your health and reduce your risk of disease by engaging in behaviors. And so let's shift the focus away from stigmatizing care that um, just sort of has that knee jerk reaction of everybody should lose weight towards promoting care that is based on helping people achieve health promoting behaviors. So that was not the most succinct <laughs> response, mm. but I hope that kind of illustrates some of the core concepts of health at every size that's so yeah such an important message thanks so much for sharing that thank you so much for sharing what you've shared it's a fascinating topic and i'm sure we could talk about this endlessly you know it's everyone's got a, probably a different experience but a yeah. lot of these themes i think are quite universal as well um yeah. can you tell us about where people can find out more about you and what you do and where they can buy your book yeah sure yeah i think um if you are intrigued and want to learn a bit more about intuitive eating and health at every size, then 
Um, my book is called Just Eat It, How Intuitive Eating Can Help You Get Your Shit Together Around Food. And you can get that. Oh, yeah, there it is. Um, the <laughs> you um, can get it pretty much anywhere in the UK, Australia, and New Zealand. Um, there's an ebook and an audiobook version as well. And um, you can find me at Laura Thomas PhD on socials. My website's laurathomasphd.co.uk. And um, my clinic is the London Center for Intuitive Eating.co.uk. There's no the on the URL. It's just London Center for Intuitive Eating.co.uk. I always forget that. Um, but yeah, those are all the places to find me. And we have online courses for people who want a bit more support um, moving through the intuitive eating process. Brilliant. Brilliant. And I'll put all those links below. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thanks so much, Chloe. It was really fun. Thank you. So thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Let me know over on Instagram. You can find me at Chloe Brotheridge and you can find Laura at Laura Thomas PhD. Don't forget to please subscribe to this podcast if you have enjoyed it and you want to hear about future episodes. And if you really liked it, why not consider leaving a review? It would really help me out because it helps me to spread the word about this podcast. And if you've got a friend who you just think they need this episode or this podcast in their life, please do find a way to share it with them. Finally, you can get an anxiety busting toolkit for free at my website, karmau.com forward slash free. That's karma as in karma relaxed, C-A-L-M-E-R. So it's karmau.com forward slash free. Head over there and I'll send you my free anxiety busting toolkit. Thanks so much for listening. I'm sending you loads of love and I hope you have a great week. 